broadcasting live from... You ask for miracles, Leo? I give you the F-B-I. This is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Hans Gruber. <laughs> and I'm your other host, Seamus Connolly. And that is such a fun joke that we've been holding on to since opening night when we saw this movie. And I'm glad we finally got around to it in the most confusing way possible. Truly, I mean, there's no time like a month after the movie came out <laughs> to review the movie on your podcast. That's what I always say. You know, every, everybody's got a chance to see that three and a half hour long movie now. So at the very least, maybe a little more, a little more accessible, as it were, for our episode today. I do agree, and I think that this is a movie that uniquely benefits compared to the other fare that we cover on this show. From time to reflect and process, and I definitely as things occur to me, I will like look things up and I'll be like, is this something? Mm. Is this something that I'm remembering correctly? Or like, you know, do, have other people had this thought? Which is nice to affirm because, you know, Scorsese. You Obviously, it's, it's Scorsese, and I, I turned to you as the credits started rolling, and I was like, that was the best season of television I've ever seen, you know? Like, I was, <laughs> I loved it, but it was, it's so dense in, in runtime, in, did we even ever say Killers of the Flower Moon, or do we just pass oh, yeah, right no, by we're that? Doing Killers of the Flower Moon. <laughs> um, Probably obvious by all of the, the nonsense that we have been going on about and here. And also, but... you clicked on the episode that says Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, the, my favorite bit would podcast host go like and surprise today and then it's a thing that's the full title of that week's episode but we do have to get into some news and we do have a lot of news not a lot of news but we have important news this week so why don't we go ahead roll on in starting with at long last the heavens are clearing the the skies above the sag aftra strike has come to an end as sag aftra and the amptp have reached a tentative deal that includes a seven percent pay increase and protections against ai now we'll get into more about what we know about the deal so far in our pop culture reference but this has transitioned every major studio into full gear with immediate resuming of production for basically any movie that was ceased during the strike, including the sequels for Venom, Gladiator, Deadpool, and Beetlejuice, and presumably somewhere Tom Cruise is sprinting to <laughs> another continent right now to begin shooting whatever uh, Mission Impossible stunt that he's been concocting during this break. He's been sitting in a chair squirming this whole time, like <laughs> bursting to jump out of a building window somewhere, but... <laughs> I mean, we thought this was an impossible mission to get this strike wrapped up, but they got there very, very happy. We finally get to see Venom 3 someday soon, but... I, I was on the edge of my seat. <laughs> After that giant cliffhanger at the end of Let There Be Carnage, where Carnage went, you can bet there's gonna be Scream, and then everybody was like, oh... He that. said, it's carnaging time, and then, boom, cut to black. You know, very, very prolific stuff out there. Everybody everybody knows it now. Household scene. Venom 2, uh, a movie that both of us have seen and adore. Um, Venom 1? Did you even see that? I was in the room <laughs> while Venom 1 played, and I talked over it. Oh, that sounds like a better time to me than watching Venom, but I guess, you know, uh, we'll, we'll have to get caught up for all of these sequels. I'll have Maybe to run you through Gladiator. Scream was maybe in the first Venom, and I'm just crazy that that was even a joke. That I, it doesn't. We are not. <laughs> We're not diving um, in. That is not our pop culture reference today. So yes, I'm glad the strike has finally come to an end, and I'm excited to talk. 
talk about it more in our pop culture reference. But let's go ahead and move on to today's Warner Warning. Oh, God, it's been so long. Oh, Jesus, God. It really has it been feel, a while. It feels like it's been a long time. And, and back with a Warner Warning that makes me kind of really sad. I've been really kind of warming up to John Cena as an actor. And, like, you know, I think he has a lot of fun on the stuff that he does. And the fully filmed, like, in it's the can. The fully, fully completed. Yeah. Fully completed Coyote versus Acme John Cena live action animation hybrid is being shelved for another Warner Brothers Discovery tax write-off. This is my least favorite trend in all of Hollywood, Garrett. I really do dislike this a lot. It is sickening, to be honest. And I, I cannot imagine that there's anybody that is going to be willing to sign. Like, do you think John Cena is going to sign on for another Warner? Brothers movie? I I have a feeling he won't. I I mean, I feel like John Cena is a fairly hot commodity right now. He's in a lot of really, really popular stuff. And to say that part of the, like, the major reasoning for doing something like this is that they are trying to shift to more theater format, like, whatever films. It's like, who's, I would have gone to see that in a theater. That sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like a Looney Tunes back in action style thing with John Cena. What's not to like about that? And it was co-written by James Gunn, who is the CEO yeah. of DC Films. And so if his movie isn't safe, I do not know what would be. It is horrific, Seamus. Yeah, it makes me it makes me truly sad. I mean, this will hopefully see the light of day in some form, someday, somehow. But Honestly, I mean if it's finished, I'm holding out hope that somebody will be able to leak it for yeah, us that to would, see. That would be nice. I I would appreciate that. I I it sounded like a lot of fun. Like what seriously, what are they thinking that people wouldn't I mean people watched the bad Space Jam sequel, you know? I mean, like, people would go to... there, opening night. Like, yeah, people would come to... People would come to see this, I think, and probably have a better time with it than the Space Jam sequel, because it's not bogged down with sequel expectations, you know? It would just be another... It would be the true third in the the Space Jam-verse, you know? I, I would have been really excited. Heartingly, I have seen a lot more creatives that worked on this film come out of the woodwork and say how disappointed and angry and frustrated they are with this decision and who knows why that is I do maybe wonder if all of the labor movement that has been going on in Hollywood Mm. has empowered people to speak out more I saw the composer for the film shared a chorus of people singing meet 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 what uh-huh, oh, like, I would love to see that. That composer's name is Stephen Price, by the way. So if you bop on over to his Twitter account, he has shared that video, which is really funny. And it seems like the people involved actually genuinely were invested in this project, which is even sadder. Not to say that other projects are not sad that they were canceled and not to say that other people weren't invested in them. And also not to say that this being good makes it a worse decision than if it were bad. No, yeah, it's just it's a scummy practice from top to bottom but just the fact that there's all these talented enthusiastic people with somebody like John Cena whose comedic acting seems like it would be perfect for a project like this it's just it's a it's a bummer all around he was in a Transformers recently I think right John Cena are you thinking of was he in a Transformers I thought he was in one I haven't seen a Transformers since they destroyed Chicago so I I got farther into that garbage than anything else but I do not remember him 
him there. Are you thinking think of he's he did GI Joe? Oh, I think really? He's in Bumblebee. Yeah, he's in Bumblebee. Well, that's another. See, yeah, that tone of just like it is still like big, crazy, weird action stuff, but it's it's a it's toys, you know, it's toys and cartoons that he and comic books. He's he's all about the tone of like just fun insanity, and I I'm I'm sad that we will likely never get to see this finished product. And our last bit of news here, a, a, honestly, a very surprising announcement to me at least, that there is going to be a live-action Legend of Zelda movie coming from Nintendo and Sony Pictures. And that is just not something I ever thought we would see in this age of, you know, Nintendo breaking out into more feature-length things. But I'll, I- I'll, I'll say what you're not brave enough to say, Shane, <laughs> that Nintendo is two for two on picking studios. They're doing a bang-up job over there. They saw whatever stupid movie Sony just put out and were like, we need some of that and we need avia rod famous for making great big budget action movies uh and uh oh the director is the guy the 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 maze runner guy is is directing sweet see they saw the maze runner and they said (laughs) we need some of the kid from oh yo the kid from love actually maybe should be link actually Uh, that's the kid from love actually i i backed myself into that (laughs) oh no that's good he's good he thomas brody sang is his name you didn't get to his stuff on game of thrones i don't think and you have not seen love actually i don't think i have not have you seen the maze runner i have seen the maze runner he's the british kid from the maze runner with the like his hair looks like you just dipped him in peanut butter is he the guy that looks like 20 years younger than he actually is correct i did just get to his stuff on game of thrones and then i was like i can't tell how old this guy is and i bailed on the on the show He's good though. I've seen him. He was in uh something else that I saw. He was in like a war movie, wasn't he? Was he on was he in uh Dunkirk maybe? He might have been. I think he was in Testament of Youth, and which maybe, is not a movie that you saw. I want to um, say he was in a really good David Tennant era Doctor Who episode where he's like a British schoolboy. Well, it wasn't everybody. I was actually I, one of those uh British school <laughs> Famously, famously. Well, I now that I know who we're talking about, not a bad not a bad link choice, I guess. He's very elf, elfish looking, you know. He's also. I'm learning now for maybe the first time that he is Ferb. What uh, Phineas and of uh, Phineas and Ferb fame? Uh-huh. That is so weird. I don't know. That is so strange. Well, that, he talks like once every four. Yeah, episodes. I was gonna say it's it, it, that's a that's a Disney paycheck right there. You can't go wrong. He also I forgot was one of the like one scene first order guys in Force Awakens, which I forgot. Oh yeah, dude, what a weird what a weird career. So yeah, you know what? Throw him Link. Who cares? I'm I think so he, like he's got that little like twinky well, innocence. That yeah, you, you, need you just and... gotta throw the pointy ears on him. You know, give him a green cap. If they don't absolutely. Bump it, a la having Chris Pratt fully voice act Mario with like real lines, and they just have him do Link noises. Mm-hmm. I think that's a no brainer. I think that would I think that would cut down on a lot of backlash from like the the uh, Legend of Zelda animated show from the '80s where he's like a snarky a hole for some reason and like talks to everybody. I think just keep him silent. I think I think that's a pretty good bet. And then I I looked it up. You and I were talking before the show about this Hunter Schaefer from euphoria and apparently the new hunger games movie i don't know her but i have seen pictures and this is the popular fan cast right now is that she should be zelda 
Yeah, she looks like Zelda. She should. I, it sure. Looks, it looks good. Now, are you familiar? Did you ever play any any Legend of Zelda games? I've played really? some Zelda. I've played enough to to you know know about the stuff. Right. I, I know I'm what just, the Triforce is. Yeah, that's really you know Master Sword this and then uh, don't don't bash up the chickens that you you get the basics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean. As long as they don't go too far out of nowhere with the kind of story they're trying to adapt, there are like three different timelines they could go with. They could do the prequel stuff, like the the Skyward Sword era, where he's just like a like there's like a floating city or something. They, they they've really got a lot of options, so I'm I'm cautiously optimistic here, but I I need to see that casting very soon. Do you have the opposite of what we normally do? Even though I already gave my answers for the right one, so I'm kind of having my cake and eating it too. <laughs> do you have like Mario? style casting choices that you think that would just be a terrible although most of the Mario cast is well cast but whatever like the Chris Pratt is Mario level this is the worst choice you could make for a movie like that like like my absolute anti like fantasy casting yeah your anti cast um god I'm trying to think of uh Dwayne the Rock Johnson is Link. I don't know that's or like Dwayne Johnson is Ganon but I guess why would you make Chris Pratt Mario They, I could realistically see The Rock doing like Ganondorf and like putting him in like really thick armor and green makeup and like being like, oh, it's such a huge name for such a huge iconic villain. And then Ganondorf like raising his eyebrow in the final battle and making me roll my eyes or whatever. So I, something like that, I could definitely see them shoehorning in. That's pretty good. Okay. Josh Gad is Tingle. You remember, you know, Tingle? (laughs) I do know Tingle. Yeah. That's not, why is that, I don't, you're not, no, that that was, Josh Gad. That was so actually cool. one of my thoughts this week when I heard about this. I was like, oh, famously, Josh Cat has earned a little bit of pod respect on Murder on the Orient Express. But we got to backpedal him into being in like a tiny little green onesie and having rosy little cheeks and being an annoying bastard again. I think I think I would fall in love with him even farther. Something I'm realizing is people who have long-standing relationships with Sony Studios include Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> oh no. And for Tingle, Jack Black. Oh, you think Jack Jack Black can double dip? You think you think they're gonna allow that? I mean, he's Jack Black. You know, I guess, but I don't know. I feel like I that's on the table. it's too soon. I think it's too soon. I wouldn't I wouldn't hate it because Jack Black is just a funny guy and I like him in things. But also, damn it, I've seen those TikToks that he does in like his around his giant pool where he's just in like a little speedo and he's like marching around it's very tingly so i i don't know you might have you might have made me come around nick jonas is link and then we're good right that's nick jonas is link where did that come from because he's i'm doing the i'm going through the jumanji cast right now is what i'm thinking nick jonas is in jumanji brother we gotta watch i am so out of the loop Kevin Hart is Tingle? Hmm. Oh, no. No, Kevin Hart is is, Navi. You're going to speak that. Hey, look, listen. (laughs) You're going to speak that into existence. It's done. It's done. It is written, Gary. We, We have no choice of the matter now. But I think that's all we've got for the news today. What do you say we kick it on over and finally get into Killers of the Flower Moon? I do like that movie, sir. I do, too. Let's get into it. For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about the new Martin Scorsese epic, Killers of the Flower Moon. It really was epic. It really is. It feels like one of the 
first epics I've actually gotten to see brand new in a theater, IMAX no less. I thought it was a, a, a fantastic film. I think it's probably one of my favorite Scorsese movies that I've seen of his in years. Everyone was acting their asses off. I thought, you know, Leo was killing it. I think Bobby D, Robert De Niro, un... I mean, he was making me laugh the whole movie, but that's not the movie's fault. I, that's just Robert De Niro is funny when he, you know, puts on his, like, convertible driving goggles and looks like Skullface from Metal Gear Solid. I thought about starting a timer to see how long it would take you to bring up. <laughs> the goggles? goggles? They're so funny. They're so good. Him, there's, like, two or three different times where he, like, just, like, rolls up. He's like, get in. And he turns to him menacingly and he's got the goggles on. Come um, on. You, those goggles will... will come back to in spoilers i think actually because there is something to be mined from them i mm. think beyond the fact that you and i were both laughing out loud <laughs> in the theater every time he turned to leo wearing those but i think uh, you mentioned very deservingly both of their performances are i mean i think it's leo's most interesting work in in years and other than the irishman i don't know the last time robert de niro did a real movie so yeah i guess i i can't really place it either i didn't he did a string of like weird comedies at one point i think but i I, have not been keeping up i didn't even see the irishman you should see the irishman well i'm a little more inspired now i the the runtime was always my like yeah whatever but you know it's a scorsese you sit down you you really sit in sink into it rather you know you 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 gotta commit and especially since the irishman is like you know streaming from the very start i can just pause the thing it's it's i've got to stop beating around the bush the irishman feels like a a reflection on Scorsese. I mean, very explicitly, it's a reflection on Scorsese's mob pictures and a guy at the end of his career looking back on what he did and didn't do and why he did things the way he did them. And obviously, I think that there is a resonance with, and I will come back to Killers of the Flower Moon, this is going somewhere. Oh, I'm sure. There's a resonance in, hey, I'm going to take all the guys that I've worked with my whole career and I'm going to make them young again. I'm not just going to cast young guys Mm. to look like them as young guys I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna use this weird ghost technology to fruitlessly and futilely wind back the clock and of my on my frequent collaborators ages and so while that is not one of my favorite Scorsese's but it is like a really interesting piece as an artist this feels like he's going back even further and he's looking at what is the origin of the kind of unique brand of greed and evil that so many of my most iconic films have focused on and the fact that DiCaprio is brought in playing a man much younger than his own age I should note and that he's kind of getting under the wing of one of Scorsese's oldest most frequent mm-hmm. collaborators again feels very intentional it feels like a companion piece to the irishman but it also feels like a movie that he has had even more time to reflect on and unlike the irishman not that i don't think the irishman isn't saying something new but this feels like an entirely new type of film for scorsese to make and one that i would think would be more challenging than the irishman and that I, 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 none of that is to dismiss or diminish what the Irishman does. But I think that you you keep reading all these interviews with Scorsese where he's like, I finally understand all this stuff, and I have no more time left. And you feel I, you feel that in both of those films, but in very different ways. And I know he is, I believe, already trying to work on another picture with Leo uh, starring because he just yeah. 
I, I got, believe like, the Kane Court mutiny, or is that the new Friedkin that just oh, came? It's a courtroom sure. drama of some kind that he and Leo are talking about making. But yeah, I'm I'm excited for that. Kind of like you're saying, he's he's still bubbling with this burning, evolving view of his own work and cinema as a whole. I I want to I want to see however many more four hour flicks he's got in him because they're you know he's not really slowing down in terms of quality right now. It's really fantastic to see. I was just kind of browsing what people have to say. About about this now that it's been a lot of time and so much negative view so much of a negative view about this movie has to do with like its length and the use of that length I guess like people are like there's all these scenes that are are so long quiet drawn out in ways that people are losing interest but I think that this movie really shines in so many of its quiet longer drawn out moments just as much as it does with the absolute brutality that this movie shows on screen that I actually was not prepared for going in the amount of gore and uh, actual like blood gore special effects that are used practically in a lot of these more violent scenes it was just fascinating to see that level of technical and very specific a grotesque achievement that he was going for in a story like this that he, you know, obviously felt was so important. And somebody who I think it's criminal that you and I have not brought up yet, who is maybe the best part of the oh, movie, of course, is Lily Gladstone. And the shocking nature of the type of violence and the disturbing imagery that you're talking about is, I mean, very well executed. It's Scorsese, obviously, but I think it's amplified and anchored by this really measured, similarly patient with bursts of intensity performance that Lily Gladstone delivers at the center of the film. And watching her have to reckon with everything that's going on around her and the events that are directly affecting her life that Mm. she has such little power over but is trying to navigate as best she can. And again, that's something we'll get into a little bit more in spoilers, but I've been a huge fan of hers since Kelly Reichert's Certain Women, and I want to say that was in like 2016 or 2017. And she delivers a standout performance that is really quiet and subtle in a cast full of a caliber of actors of like Michelle Williams and Kristen Stewart and Laura Dern that is captivating. And I've been really waiting for her to have her big star turn. And I'm so glad that she found a a text that was, I think, rich enough and high profile enough that could properly showcase her. I mean, yeah, she is in so incredibly talented. Like we know so many any of the people in this film they've had their time to show through so many high profile projects just how talented they are but the range of emotions that she displays in this movie is like unlike anything i've ever seen she is so and i, I don't want to get into too many of those emotions as we as we are pre-spoilers but she can like you say kind of sit back into this world and have the more subtle moments but then really steal the show entirely in a film of nothing but show stealing performances so I I really I agree with you. She she's incredible. I want to see this movie again just specifically for her at this point, but I thought her performance was magnificent. You just brought up the divisive reactions to this film online and I see two kind of camps forming about this movie that there are some people that think that it, her role isn't big enough in the film and that then there are other people that respond to that by saying well Scorsese is not trying to tell this story from a native lens that he knows he's mm. 
unable to tell from. And that's, again, another thing that you and I are going to have to get into in spoilers. But I do think it's very interesting and difficult to kind of parse, even with some of the things that the movie does later in its runtime that you and I will talk about. Because during the movie, I did have the thought multiple times of, man, I wish that Lily Gladstone were really, truly the main character of this film. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, she's the main character. This is... The the stupidest analogy that I've ever come up with. And I it's the first thing that popped into my head, so it's what's coming. She's the main character of the film in the way that Cameron is the main character of Ferris Day Off. <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad comparison. It's a, it's a support, what would seem like the more supporting role that is actually the lens through everything being reflected back from it in a more subtle way, you know? It, the, there's more flashy things maybe going on with what feels like somebody getting more screen time, more lines, but it's really all about that supporting character. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, they're just, I think it's an embarrassing comparison to, you know, to compare a, a, a slice of pizza to, like, a, an actual meal. <laughs> and not, no hate on Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but... I mean, you know, the appropriate amount of hate on Ferris Bueller's Day Yeah, off. that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. That is probably no, true. It's, it's a non-zero amount of hate for Ferris Bueller's Day Off. However... Getting back to Scorsese, there is an element that, and I think that it's meta narratively, it's been admirable that so many of the Osage voices that were directly involved with the production of the film have not, were obviously, you know, invited and listened to and asked to consult. But on top of that, criticism that is leveled by those same people is given in a, like, press. It's not... And it's not just like people are going to Variety around the studios and saying, well, here's what I thought about the movie. Like, these people are at press events. They're on red carpets. They are talking directly in front of, you know, studio banners saying, here is what I liked about the film and here's what I did. Mm. And here are some of the reservations that I have about the way that these real life events are portrayed. And again, I think the movie kind of, has some things to say about its own place as a storytelling device and the limitations of true crime media in general. But again, that is for uh, later in the podcast. I'm trying to think. I've got a lot of... It's a long movie. There's a lot of spoilers to, <laughs> to talk. Yes, and you don't... You know, it's not even... Some, you know, there's kind of two kinds of spoiler segments on this show. I feel like there's like, oh, did you know that Thanos was going to show up at the end of the Mario movie? And then there is, <laughs> we can't speak holistically about a piece of art that we are unpacking without talking about the events that happen in the movie that you probably don't want to know the first time you go to see them. And so... I think we're in, it's camp number two, for sure, except for the fact that Thanos showed up at the end of this movie. <laughs> Can't believe Scorsese got him for this one. <laughs> you know that tweet that's like, they should have just put Chewbacca in other movies like he was a normal guy? <laughs> I, I don't know that, but I do like that idea. Chewbacca solving the Osage murders? That's in poor taste, Garrett. You made well, that joke, not me. Uh, <laughs> Jesse Plemons... I'd rather have Jesse Plemons in my movie than Chewbacca, and you can quote me on that. I think you were telling me, and I am telling you back, that it is time to move on to our spoiler section. So, full spoilers for Killers of the Flower Moon. Where, oh, where do we start, Garrett? There's so much. 
you want to start where all good stories start at the ending? Yeah, sure. <laughs> talk about, because, you know, we were just finishing up, I think, that kind of thought about how throughout the movie, Scorsese clearly is kind of wrestling between telling a story about these awful men doing an awful thing and the kind of banality and and it's not even a slippery slope it is it is the most innocuously a character has ever been won over to the dark side oh yeah so to speak in a scorsese film which i think is important especially given the context of it in his larger career and the historical context of the placement of the story uh from a political context but he's still wrestling back and forth with how much for this story to be from Molly's perspective. And at the end of the film, we do not get a traditional resolution that most historical epics of its ilk would give us. Instead, we are treated to a gauche, kind of, more than kind of, just straight up tacky radio drama mm. that is summing up the events of the three and a half hour film that preceded it. And one that's al- like that's already such a kind of great stroke of acknowledging the shortcomings of this kind of media and making us interrogate who tells our history and how they tell it is almost as important as Mm. who it is. But then just when you think he's gone full cynic, it's the end of burn after reading and you know, (laughs) what did we learn? Nothing, I guess (laughs) that you get a nice little spotlight and the crowd goes quiet, both in the radio drama audience and your own IMAX screen and little Martin Scorsese walks out and he's the one that delivers the end of Molly's story once again still acknowledging that you know he's you know he's the guy that's telling Molly's story and maybe there are some problems with that but doing it with a level of sobriety and respect that the rest of the radio drama is not treating the summation of events with. Yeah, there's a. It's an interesting, like you were saying, it is. It is like a tacky presentation of you know. It's literally a cigarette company sponsored true crime radio drama show. You're looking. You're like a little bit confused at first, and then you go, "Oh, is that Jack White sitting back there? Oh, Martin Scorsese's walking out." It's like you are being asked to be distracted as if you were looking at the film itself and saying, like, oh, Leo DiCaprio's in this one, huh? Like, oh, it's a Scorsese, you know, it's gonna be a good crime movie. And then finally getting into what it is about, and then realizing that it is holding a mirror up to itself in that end. And then it, of course, very beautifully cuts to the actual Osage tribe doing uh, a ritual dance and that's kind of how it, it pans out in the end to kind of once again remind you of like hey these are the actual real human beings that have had to deal with the generations of what the true story actually meant we're watching you know we're watching it opening day in the theater and we're like this is i mean hell it's a great movie i really really enjoyed it but it is a lot more responsible in calling attention to the fact that you know these are were and are real people that have gone through more than anyone could have ever known and i thought it was a great way to end up there and that as these evil men for their own ends try to exterminate the remainder of the osage people try to homogenize them into white culture into american quote-unquote culture that it's very important that it's a modern group Mm -hmm. oh yes that 
they're still here and they're still practicing the traditions that we see the tribal leaders at the very opening of the movie say goodbye to. And while, yes, a big chunk of that way of life is gone and we see it disappear over the course of this three and a half hours, that the legacy is still at least partially intact. Yeah, there's a lot of the, I mean, it's it's not, you know, hidden in any way. The plot of the movie is Leo, it's him and his whole family just very out in the open, clearly marrying for money, murdering for money, swapping partners to be like, well, they have the, uh, well, they have the inheritance now, so I'm just going to switch over to them because of the whole legal system of it all. And just watching this very, it's, I would say chip away, but it's really like taking massive chunks out of this kind of culture and traditions one big piece at a time and it is truly so disgusting to see that transpire you know you got leo dicaprio little Ernest, out there he's like 10 percent unsure and then robert de niro's like this is what you're gonna do and he's like okay sir I'll, i guess i'll do it and then i and do then like that, that money sir. i do like that money sir oh god I, mean, I do love that line too but it's such a sinister line this just greedy bastard coming back and just being like, well, Uncle De Niro's telling me I can just marry this chick and get all of her family money, so I guess that's what I'll do. As I was watching, I kept waiting for, like, the scene where they indoctrinate Ernest into the conspiracy where they have, like, the talk with him. But they just, it just and they never don't. happens. It, that, all the way... I think that's great. I'm so glad that Scorsese has the restraint to be like, no, this guy just did the ba- did an evil thing because he was told to. And there was no, yeah, there he... was no moment where he was like, where they were like, do you want to be evil? He just was. Yeah, he just he was. was. To be. He, he knew what he was doing with that oh, insulin. Absolutely. He was, you know, even in his own guilt-ridden moments where he's like, you know, he drinks the poison that he's been poisoning his wife with to prove that it's poison, even though he knows for sure that it's poison. Or his reactions to, like, the bombing scene and things like that. Like, you can see that he kind of feels bad, but at no point does he ever really try to put his foot down at all he is being tugged along for the ride and he's like kind of fine with it you know there's those micro moments where you maybe think he's gonna finally question it and oh he's gonna work with the fbi to put king behind bars forever and then even then he brendan fraser is like (laughs) they beat you didn't they boy and he's like oh well yes sir i guess they did and i ah my heart really broke with that it's so easy for him to be convinced that you know just your evil terrible bs that you are so comfortable with is just the way it's done around here and that's what you're gonna keep doing and that's what he does well i don't want to call it an anti-climax because i don't think that's a fair characterization of the film but the fact that the last scene between him and lily gladstone which is the last scene in the main time period in which Mm. the movie is set is so understated that both of them are doing so it just kind of feels like another scene it doesn't feel like this is the emotional climax for these two characters Mm. except for when she then she asks the question and he won't say the answer god god damn it it and she just gets up and she leaves and it's all right there in her face and how she could do so much with such little movement and and no dialogue at the i it's it's astounding I think no, she's she, astounding. I think she's she, incredible in that scene. I mean, throughout the whole movie, obviously, but she's she's so, you know, stoic. Like we were saying before, she has this, like, strength in, in her character throughout a lot, but then she's so 
taken down by this this man in so many like this man that she loves and trusted and it's the silent heartbreak of her just knowing that this man who she devoted her life to and sacrificed her entire way of life and almost literally sacrificed her family for is just as big of a monster as any of any of the other ones and that he just couldn't possibly stand up for himself and do the right thing even though it's uh, it seems like he's going to but i don't know even even with his honesty in the end about in you know in the courtroom and all there's there's literally nothing to redeem that human being that real oh, yeah. human being who lived or that interpretation of that character and the film is constantly reminding you that Ernest, even as innocuous as his behavior often is there is no path to absolution that you're absolutely right even if he was honest it's not that there is redemption in that and it says that right up until the last moments where it twists the knife of how long he lived after the events of the film oh yeah it is it is truly such a dark movie and i i love it because it's stunning absolutely gorgeous those quieter moments that i mentioned before when they weren't being interrupted by the taylor swift eras tour in the next theater over were enchanting and haunting just the sitting at the dinner table listening to the rain and just being like just be here just listen to nature don't be running to the next thing that's gonna make you a dollar or get your heart racing just calm down just be in this place with me i i thought it was just haunting beautiful and that i mean goes right back up to that end scene we were just talking about just the quiet the calm the being in that room with those two characters both of them knowing the truth but neither of them being able to say it out loud it's it's so heartbreaking so switching gears a little bit i alluded to this a little bit earlier but well i gotta go there in a roundabout way i guess earlier this year we saw some great dog acting in last voyage of demeter but what i was not prepared for was great owl acting in this oh movie. yeah those those moments were crazy that really those were catching me off guard those uh dream sequence slash dying visions that we mm-hmm. see a few times i thought that was so so cool the way that they do those and then i mean obviously there's a little more ambiguity as we go on we're not sure if it's a if it's a actual a spiritual experience or if it's hallucination based on medicine or drugs poison whatever either way they, they those moments were like exclamation points in the middle of a sentence somewhere that i was not expecting they are i kept thinking especially in the scene where molly's mother dies that they have this kind of bergman-esque flourish that scorsese usually doesn't embellish in those kind of super quiet spiritual Mm. moments because even the notable exception being silence a movie that is all about super quiet spiritual moments well right but in a different in a very different context and deployed very differently I think I had connected myself the imagery of the owl appearing to Molly as she's dying and maybe not being there and maybe being there with obviously King appearing to her and maybe being there and maybe not being there when she's dying. What I had not connected and that some very, you know, helpful people on the internet had because I looked it up and I was like, you know, what do people have to say about this? I was mm-hmm. like, what, what have the critics said? And people are like, well, his giant freaking goggles that he wears look an awful lot like owl eyes and his little round glasses and the way his hair is slicked back and i'm like oh, oh i should pay attention wow. to costume design probably no no i'm i am dumb as well i'm right there with you that is that is genius 
And, I mean, Scorsese really pays attention to things like that. Also, we should shout out uh, Thomas Schoonlocker, who's Scorsese's longtime editor and collaborator, mm. who knocks it out of the park in this three-and-a-half-hour... This movie feels short than Oppenheimer, and Oppenheimer is not a movie that feels its runtime and was similarly, I think, kind of paced. And, yeah, obviously, there is something to be mined from big ensemble period epics that came out in the same year. But, yeah, this movie's paced really well and edited really well and clearly Scorsese is great at picking and trusting his collaborators and that extends all the way through every aspect of the production yeah that the editing and the pacing of it all I I really appreciated how weird the time jumps were in this movie there's no real indication of when they happen there's just like the next scene happens and everyone's living in a new house and there's new kids and you're like are, are those Leo's kids like what is happening here are those a, a dead relative's children that they are now taking care of that have grown older? How many years has it been? It's a very kind of haphazard way of, of keeping this story moving when you do get these longer side scenes of like, you know, we got to go talk to the guy who makes moonshine and tell him to go do, you know, rob a bank for 10 minutes and like have a real slow crime talk sit down. And then you, you, you know, jumping straight to a different whole year or years later, even it is it really kept me on my toes those and and interconnecting those with again those like dream sequence uh death hallucination whatever you want to call them it, it was really making it not just a long drawn out crime movie it, it made for me at least it made it the runtime feel way shorter i agree with everything you just said i don't have anything to add to that uh um, we very briefly mentioned jesse plemons he's killing it yes. in this because he always does and he never won't he needs to be a bigger star and i will say that until it happens uh, Jesse Plemons for Link? Link in Legend of Zelda? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, you need to watch Power of the Dog. I uh, do, dude. We, I think that that is brought up once a, once a show. And I, every time I'm like, ah, I know, dude, I know. It, well, while we're on the subject, his whole little FBI posse, including the one indigenous guy on his FBI posse. Oh, yeah, man. That, what a pleasure to watch that. Because if this were, I've and I, full disclosure, have not read The Killers of the Flower Moon book. But to my understanding, if this were a more faithful adaptation of that book they would have been the leads. Mm -hmm. They would have been, like, the whole movie would have been the one little montage we get of them being FBI guys, and I'm so glad that, not that I'm sure that wouldn't be a fine movie, but I'm so glad that we got a much more personal, yeah, humanistic oh yeah. approach, and that the FBI are not exactly presented as holistically good in this movie, or, like, actual arbiters of justice. They are merely a gesture that perhaps governmental tide is changing even in the slightest way toward acknowledging the mistreatment going on even if there's nothing that they're actually going to do about it they play a very interesting role i think um compared to other Scorsese cop roles, which are usually a little... Like, think Kyle Chandler in Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. He's much more of just, like, here's this clean-cut guy that's after these bastards, and that's what his role is. 
and Plemons is playing it much more ambiguously. He's playing it, I mean, with a similar levity, I would say, but there's almost, because we know how horrific what's going on behind the scenes is, there's almost something a little bit more sinister about that levity. Well, yeah, it's very, because this, the Osage murder case was the very first case of the FBI, the newly formed FBI, yes. I believe. So it's it's this kind of back and forth of, uh, a group of men who are like, you know, they have an authority in this situation, but they are like absolute gumshoes. They are brand spanking new out of the box. And then you have them dealing with these people that are like, oh, yeah, this has been happening to us for 300 years. And uh, we are very familiar with, um, you know, white American people just slaughtering us for no real good reason. And they're like, Jesse Plemons is like, well, we're just trying to figure it out. We're just, you know, going going around town trying to trying to get it done. And then they, they, they get some work done in there for sure. But that levity, that like cluelessness of about him and his boys that they kind of express, it does dip into sinister of like, you know, the incompetence of those who could actually help in this situation. And there's still murders going on literally all around them. Yeah. Very well said. But I mean, then the, the the boys, the posse meeting up in like the oil field and then seeing the fires in the distance, that's a pretty damn good looking scene. Which there's so much that in addition to just being an outstanding sequence, one of the best sequences of the year, I think, the mm-hmm. fire where King is collecting all of his insurance money, is Scorsese is both crafting a beautiful original sequence, but also kind of mining horrific imagery imagery that is a, of both other american films and his own that are about similar things in that moment because the obvious one is there is a certain visual similarity between that sequence and the burying of the body at the beginning of goodfellas but also oh yeah you know what i'm i'm dumb again i did not i did not pick that up <laughs> much more literally it is very similar to a very similar sequence in Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven, which is all about the exploitation of workers during the Great Depression. So a similar time frame mm-hmm. dealing, you know, dealing with a kind of quote-unquote white trash America and the dynamic that wealth creates between people in rural agricultural communities. Obviously that movie does not have the same racial angle or that this movie does but i think that he is still quoting that very effectively yeah that is a that is a scene that is going to stick in my mind there and i'm gonna need to go back and rewatch a couple of those inspirations i think i've never seen uh days of heaven and i haven't seen goodfellas in probably 10 years oh no i remember i watched goodfellas on the night of my high school graduation party so that about 2017 and that was the first and only time i've ever seen it i've got that days of heaven criterion that i bought oh yes and then like the next week they announced that it wasn't you're going to be out of print anymore, so you're welcome to borrow that. <laughs> I, I very much will. Uh, three guys that I want to shout out real quick, or three actors, I should say, that I want to shout out real quick uh, before we get too lost in the sauce and pass them by. One, uh, Kara Jade Myers, who plays Anna, the sister of Incredible. Uh, Molly. She's yeah. great. She's so... Because she takes a role that could be really one-note and one-dimensional, and fleshes it out in the background so that when it is her time to have her big moments, 
through, you know, like, in the sequence that is mostly about Anna, she feels like a fully formed character and not something that just sprang out of nowhere. So, she's great, and then two smaller roles. Uh, Great to see John Lithgow pop up in this. Oh, he was was acting his life out. He was going hard in that courtroom. I thought he was great. And the how much you ever lost in a coin toss gas station guy from No Country for Old Men is the horrible accountant that is overseeing Molly's family's estate. And oh, is that who that guy is? Guy ever. <laughs> he's so good because he's so he's a great addition to any kind of usually Cohen ensemble of this ilk, but. He's so evil in this in a way that he's, again, the banality of evil, that he's just condescending and coldly cruel. Yeah, he, he was, he was, I mean, a lot of these minor characters, like the, the accountant, the funeral director, the, there's a couple, you know, the moon, the moonshine guy. There's just like all these very minor characters who their entire goal in life, it seems, is to exploit the Osage oil money in whatever possible way they can or, you know, do horrific actions against them for the word of king. So, I it's the little pieces of evil that you see. You know, there's that shot of uh, Molly at the train station. I think, she, it's, I think it's her at the train station. She's, like, waiting in a sea of scowling white faces that are getting off the train to Osage County. And it's just such a... It's the perfect visual for the idea that this movie brings forth of, like, this is the native land of this tribe, and they are being drowned. They are being surrounded, and it's a war of attrition that they are... I mean, they're losing. They have no feet to stand on until Jesse Plemons and the FBI get there, pretty much. And I I think that that is something that they do not let you forget throughout the entire three and a half hours. Well... I think my final note on this film, which I think you teed me right up for, is that this is an entirely new type of endeavor for Scorsese, and I think ultimately for filmmaking, it's a new story told in a familiar package, that it's this epic that is trying to do things and unravel elements of the American West that smaller films have, I would argue, probably even more successfully done, but never on this scale. And that while Scorsese, throughout the film, and most importantly at the end of the film, acknowledges his own shortcomings as a storyteller of this subject, doesn't necessarily all the way absolve himself of the limitations of the fact that he's a white filmmaker trying to tell the story of indigenous women but he did as good a job as i can imagine any white filmmaker doing i yes i very much agree with that i i another thing i keep seeing a lot of in the public discourse is like oh it's another you know it's a white man making a movie about two white men when it should be more of a focus on the more indigenous people in that but it's it's like you're saying it's what he knows how to tell a story like and not not glorifying anything. A lot of his work is famous for like you know I w- I want to see Italian mobster guys stab someone to death in a trunk and they're gonna shoot it in an interesting way and make it like kind of a hyped up scene. But that is not what this movie is at all. It is the it is a expertly done examination of actual real life horrors done in a way that is horrific and feels very true to life. So I think it was a successful a successful way to adapt this story the way that he could. And I think to be clear, 
that a lot of the people that interpret, you know, Goodfellas is the movie that we're talking about when we say that that way are people who are misreading that text. But those are texts that are more easily misread. Not to say mm. that Scorsese's doing anything wrong with the way he's portraying things, because uh, especially in the way that media literacy trends now, people think that portraying something means that you're supporting it, which is a... a yes, that is... A, an accusation commonly and probably most commonly leveled at Scorsese's films specifically, and that this film, what, no matter where you fall on his position as a filmmaker, as whether or not he should be telling the story... I would not say that is an accusation that could be in any way soundly leveled at this one. Completely agree. And I think on that note, let's go ahead and move on over to our pop culture reference. Let's do it. For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be taking a closer look at the SAG after strike resolution. As of 12.01 a.m. on November 9th, 2023, the SAG-AFTRA strike officially ended after being on strike since July 14th. The SAG-AFTRA board passed the deal with 86% in favor, and it has been sent to membership for ratification at the time of recording. While the details of the tentative deal between the union and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers are not fully disclosed, it seems that there was a movement on every major issue that led to the strike. According to a statement from SAG-AFTRA, the new contract is valued at over $1 billion in new wages and benefit funding, with, quote, above-pattern minimum compensation increases. For the first time, a streaming participation bonus was also established, and, perhaps the most hot-button issue, protections against AI and unconsented likeness usage were secured. With this tentative deal reached and the official passage of the WGA deal last month, we've reached the end of one of the longest production stoppages in Hollywood history. The work in this portion of the entertainment industry is reflective of a much larger labor movement happening across the U.S. SAG-AFTRA credits the WGA strike and solidarity to their success in obtaining fair compensation and protections for their craft. However, while this is a win for those in SAG-AFTRA, the mistreatment of below-the-line crew members, those in the animation and video game industries, and the growing shadow of AI, this is likely not the ultimate resolution to contemporary entertainment labor disputes. Seamus, I just like you said, don't think we're out of the woods yet on our strike updates, but it is very nice to know that things are returning to motion over in Hollywood and that we're going to see people being fairly compensated and fairly treated for their work. I agree that I'm still worried about the role of AI going forward, but it sounds like at least two of the main ways that it's currently being used, which is or threatening to be used with writing and digitally resurrecting actors will be at least overseen a bit more. Yeah, it, it, it's there was literally nothing in place. It's such a new thing that anything in place for some kind of protections, it, it makes me feel like there's not going to be any kind of steamroll resolutions to push for AI now. There's something, there's a foothold to fight back against it where there wasn't one before. So I, if anything, that is the biggest win out of everything to me in, in this deal. But what you say we wrap this one up garrett and we kick it on over to save the rec center let's save it i do love that rec center sir i do love that. <laughs> save the rec center now it's time to save the rec center where we bring you our weekly recommendations 
Seamus, what do you have for me this week? Well, you knew I had to get to it as soon as possible, Garrett, but the Metal Gear Solid Master Collection is in my possession and has not left my PlayStation in about two weeks. I want to specifically highlight what I truly believe is the best video game ever made, and that's Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. I don't really know what I could tell you about this game that would, one, for you specifically, Garrett, make any kind of sense lore-wise, because it is, it is smack dab in the middle of anime nonsense. But it is also, at the exact same time, it's, it's a video game from 2001 that has a message about the control of digital information that has never, ever been more relevant to today. Very, very scary how prescient they are with the idea of that kind of control from the from a government from a from a powerful entity from things like artificial intelligence making a, a stand as a, a superpower in the world it's incredible it is it is maybe one of the best pieces of storytelling ever made let alone video games and you can finally play it on a PlayStation 5 for the first time the last time you were able to play it was in a PS3 and it was still very good but man is it nice to have a big heavy controller in your hands and get to play this kind of masterpiece now so if Garrett I've been trying for years but you, you've got the chance now to go start the journey and and make it to that absolute solid gold gem you know the magic words that you had to say to get me to play it because I have famously had the Metal Gear Solid collection for ps3 for a few years but i got it almost exactly the same time i got my playstation 5 and so what was i gonna play was i gonna play <laughs> on the crappy ps3 controller with the really long load times with oh. the low poly not to say i am against low poly but everything on top of each other and now i'm like that that new ps5 collection i you know i've got a few things to get through first uh, i'm almost platinumed on spider-man 2 i will i have vowed to myself that i will start alan wake even though october <laughs> has come and gone but i it is it is higher on my list than every other video game that i tell you i'll play and then don't play <laughs> well i i i'm just happy that it is now available for you in the best way it has ever been available and there is there is really no rush because like i said it came out in 2001 and it's been it's only gotten more important as a piece of fiction so it you know and it's Hideo Kojima so half of half of this game I don't know if you know this is The Rock the the incredible (laughs) The Rock so yeah I was vaguely aware of that so if that's not just a little extra cherry on top I don't know what is and I I know you'll get to it one day I'll I'll goddamn make sure of it Garrett Strother but what we will get to that eventually but for now What do you have to save the rec center? This is a movie that I've been wanting to see for a long time and has always been like rent or buy. And you know, you know how it is. You're like, I could Mm. rent this movie that I want to see or I could watch a movie that's already on Hulu or whatever. But serendipitously, I will plug the fact that K-19 The Widowmaker was recently placed on Peacock and Peacock Premium. So you can stream it there. It is a 2000 and I'm going to say two so uh, the same era actually weirdly we're dealing we're you and i have some oh, similar yeah. picks it's a espionage thriller well espionage i would use loosely it is a wartime thriller that is did i say Catherine bigelow already did i say you did Catherine not. bigelow okay it's Catherine bigelow and you know how i like Catherine bigelow don't we have all? i said Catherine bigelow five times <laughs> now it's uh, it's just enough times for the algorithm to pick this episode up send it right to Catherine bigelow <laughs> 
I hope so. I would love for her to to become a fan of the pod. That's what I would say uh, about that shit. Catherine well. Bigelow and James Cameron are two famous listeners, of course. That bit from 150 episodes ago. Love each other very much <laughs> and are very good friends. Of course, of course. K-19, The Widowmaker, it's Harrison Ford's doing a bad Russian accent, Liam Neeson's doing a bad Russian accent, one of the Skarsgårds, who's not one of the ones that you're thinking of. <laughs> oh no, there's Russian a fourth accent. one? No, it's it's the one from, is he in a Hulk movie? Am I crazy? He's in something like that. It's not, it's not the, it's not... It's not Stellan. It's not, Stellan. Alexander. It's it's not, not Stellan. Bill. Is it Peter? Peter Skarsgård. Oh, Peter maybe there Skarsgård. are four. There are four. I, oh, no. See, I was forgetting Bill. I was forgetting Dude, Bill. they're taking over. We should do something about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it, I mean, it's not flawless. Like I just mentioned, the accent situation. It's a little bit longer than it needs to be. I would say his politics are a little confused, but uh, is it a top five submarine movie? Probably. Ooh, I do love a submarine movie. And I mean, I'm not dissuaded by bad Russian accents. I think that's almost a bonus because that's pretty fun just in general. But I mean, hey, you're, you're, you're saying all the right ingredients for a movie that I would definitely enjoy. I think that Bigelow is such a competent director of, and I don't even just want to say action, but she has such a special sense of geography that it's really exciting to see her apply that to such a confined space as i mean obviously not every scene is on the submarine or anything like that but taking that sensibility and also i sent you a picture while i was watching the movie that our our friend um <laughs> I don't know his Tim Gunnarsson from Justified, <laughs> yes, but Tim. Jacob Pitts from Justified, one of our favorite characters, is barely in this movie, but he is in fact in it, and I don't even know if he's doing a Russian accent or not, that's how little he's in the movie. <laughs> oh no, I was gonna ask. But it is good, it's a good, it's worth your time. It's not, it's not up to, you know, it's not Catherine Bigelow's best or anything, but I enjoyed watching her tell this kind of story. Well, I will definitely go and check that out. I've been kind of back on the just throwing anything on train right now, and that seems like something that I would get sucked into if I just threw it on. It's a little slow, I'll warn you, but that not a bad thing, I don't think. She she's patient. She's a patient director. Yeah, I I'm I am in for it. We just talked about a very patient, slow movie in our main segment, so you know I'm not against it. This is an hour and ten minutes uh less than Okay, solid. But I think that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. If you want to reach the show, you can find us on social media at PCR underscore podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can find us on Facebook and like us there. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Engage with us in any way you can. It really helps the show out. This time, we promise for reals, we're actually going to be back (laughs) to regular posting. Things are still crazy but they will get let. You know how things get less crazy around the holidays? I was going to say, don't worry, it's just going to be Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and international travel coming up. Super, super above board. Nothing to worry about, I don't think. <laughs> maybe we'll just pre- maybe we'll just sit down and instead of doing a marathon, we'll just pre-record like 15 pre-record. episodes. That, I think that would be fun. It's a marathon, but instead of four minutes, it's a full hour-long discussion of <laughs> us breaking down. Really... <laughs> funny actually that's something we'll have to oh no episode 200 is not that far away oh no oh my god i can't be giving you ideas but next week we will be covering a movie that i've been hearing surprisingly good things about hunger games the ballad of songbirds and snakes uh which got its waiver its sag waiver just in time for the strike to end (laughs) yeah I am, I am, I'm something about it, Garrett. I don't know what it is yet, but I'll let you know when we, when we see this, because I am, I'm, I'm something. 
you will come over, you'll watch Catching Fire on my big TV, and then you'll go, oh, I'm actually excited for this movie. Uh, don't, don't trick me here, Gary. You can't trick me with better movies. Well, we will see if Seamus is a convert or not next week. I do love those adios, amigos.